This is the You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. I'm Will James. And... You know the phrase... There are two sides to every story. I hate that phrase. It's nonsense. I get the point of it. Effectively, you're, you know, your side of the story is not the only one. Fine. But it's a fallacy to perpetuate the idea that there are only two sides. Eithers and ors, this or that. Like, that system sucks. And it's interesting in all the ways that it trips us up. Like, I can't tell you how many, just, just political conversations, right, that I've had with people that say, well, this side does this, that side does that. We're just too polarized to the extremes. Everybody wants too much. They all need to move back towards me in the middle. Now, the middle is a mysteriously mystical place that all rational people live. Even though the last rational person you talk to disagrees with the next. The middle is this space that presupposes that in whatever issue you are considering, there are just the two sides. But both are so extreme, and you playing the middle means you've really taken no stance of your own, by your own logic. It's where you can have an opinion without the need for it to be actionable. Where you can see tragedy, but bear no responsibility for it. The middle is whack. More importantly, the middle is bullshit. There are infinite levels of nuance and experience factors that go into everything for everyone. And by framing everything as an either and an or that you yourself don't fit into because remember you're in the middle then what you're doing is accepting two terrible options as your unchanging reality at the same time ignoring the fact that you just presented a completely viable third option now maybe it's only viable to you viable in the abstract but that's another matter entirely you viewing yourself as a third point in the middle is a geometry problem. It seems like the only time that we don't split issues into these polar opposites is when we have to choose the lesser of two evils. (laughs) That's its own nonsensical matador trick. Dualism. Binary systems of thinking. They run so deep in our society, in our minds right and wrong good, evil male and female democrat, republican gay, straight gay and christian black and white black and blue black lives and all lives see it's funny how you know everything's got these two sides these two extremes except marginalized communities somehow find themselves on the opposite end of so many other groups in a binary system. It's very interesting. 
exactly what is the opposite extreme of basic human dignity towards people? And why would you want to be there? Where can a logical middle stance be in the question of basic human dignities? I'm not yelling at you. All of this has been weighing heavily on on me lately. My time spent in the middle. Particularly on spirituality and sexuality. Recently I heard the phrase of this time frame, this space, where you love groups in the abstract. I like that wording, but I, I hate that space. So did the person that coined the term, by the way. But it's that area where, where one thinks of themselves as an accepting, loving Christian, we'll say, but still holds on to a non-affirming God and gospel. Someone who will show godly love to a person that fits just a little outside these little boxes we've made, but doesn't think that a loving God can do the same. I'm not homophobic, but my Jesus is. I remember, honestly, shamefully, a sense of pride and accomplishment I felt when I came to believe that what my religion truly called me to do was to love everyone as they are and let God sort them out in the end. That if I didn't show love to my queer friends, they might not accept the Jesus who was the only one who could fix them or find a way to accept them despite. Huh. Like I, I remember in high school, a friend took me aside in our dorms. I went to a residential high school. Pulled me into a room, closed the door, and came out to me. That had never happened before. <laughs> I'd only known this person a few months, but those had been spent living in the same hall in a boarding school for science geeks. And we'd gotten to know each other pretty well, I had a lot of conversations, uh, religious conversations even. We compared our backgrounds, Adventism, their Methodistness, whatever you call it. <laughs> But I remember in the moment, I remember standing, I think I was sitting, I think I was sitting on the floor. My whole body started humming. And I, I knew that this moment was very big for them. Not necessarily telling me, I'm whoever, you know, but arriving at the place that they were ready to start being themselves even though they're coming from a conservative Bible Belt background. The Oklahoma in the 80s and 90s was not the spot to come out, you know. Now, for the 90s, I would say I was a relatively progressive kid in the abstract. What you have to remember, you don't have to remember this, I'm not trying to justify it, it's gross, but love the sinner, hate the sin was about as far left as a church kid could be back then. That was as accepting as it came. And let me let me be very, very, very clear here. There's nothing sinful 
about same-sex preferences or gender fluidity or anything of the sort. Our LGBT community is who they are intended to be. They are loved. You are loved. By me? Sure. I'm your boy. But by the thing, that essence that flows in and through all things, you are loved. But me in the 90s would have been afraid to say that. For risk of losing my own salvation for being wrong. Gross, I get it. But facts. A God that hates his own creation isn't worthy of the title. And a God that would yank fantasy future away from me for not being a homophobe shouldn't even be a thing that people allow themselves to comprehend. Can't you do better than that? Sorry, sorry, not yelling at you. Anyway, in this moment, in the 90s, I didn't start thinking about Bible verses. I didn't start fearing my friend was headed toward a fiery end. I thought, you know what kind of background and belief system they exist in, and they know the one you exist in. And they chose to tell Christian ass you this. And you know good and well why. So your response to this has to be love and acceptance. Has to be. And I knew there were many other other conversations for this person. I knew that they'd have them with everyone else in their life. And because of religion, some, if not many, of these conversations were not going to go well. I couldn't be one of them. We talked for a while. I showed extreme gratitude in being found worthy of that information. It was cool. We're still friends to this day. It's 20-something years. What began to sour for me, though, was how proud I had felt after that conversation about what I had done, how I had responded, how good I felt loving my friend in their time of need without thinking about how I'd helped build the anxiety and pressure that necessitated them taking me aside to come out to me in the first place. Me, Bible quoting, cool Christian Mr. I love everybody, but I cuss sometimes, so I'm cool, was expected to turn left. I didn't. Thank God or whatever you want to think, but only because I followed an impulse instead of my religious training. I opted in the moment to go anti-Christianity and loving this person for who they were because I knew what the rest of Christianity was going to do to them later. I think I listened to the spirit in the moment. Like in that moment, I felt I listened to spirit. But I still for a long time wondered if I'd done the wrong thing. That's how messy that time was. And that's what frustrates me the most about that time. It's, I had to leave my belief system to try to reflect the love of the focus of my belief system. I had to out-love my God so God could maybe get another chance with this friend when their church and family were done with them. 
think about that. Now, I don't, and plus, I don't remember how that conversation necessarily went. I'm actually pretty curious now if they remember it. I doubt it, though, because there was a lot of them to have in Oklahoma, I'm sure. And I, as much as I at the time was patting myself on the back, probably still said something that felt like condemnation. It was, again, the 90s, and I was an uber-fundamentalist. There is no way I was affirming. It's not possible. I don't remember, but there's no way. At best, I expressed some kind of uncertain agnosticism as to the topic and presented acceptance. But that was still more than what I thought God, the God I'm purposefully worshiping and submitting to had done. Now I'm in this weird place where I would rather you know unequivocally that I affirm you in your existence than you to call me or consider me a Christian at all. If I have to pick a label of an affirming safe space or a Christian, I'm picking affirming safe space. And for what it's worth, you throw that option at Jesus, he would too. And that's not an extreme. At least it shouldn't be. To counteract all the inclusiveness weaved throughout the story told in Scripture, just to hold fast to some bad social interpretations of a handful of clobber verses, something you can spend 10 minutes researching and quickly know that the concept that you think of when you hear the word homosexuality is not a concept addressed in the Bible at all, even when you read in the Bible that word. Like, we could, we could address the RSV interpretation, how that's led to that being taken out of control. We can talk about how what is addressed in these topics is ceremonial sex acts, pedophilia, all of which were lacking consent from the parties involved. We can talk about why all of that's still bad. We could do all of that. But you could do that on your own on Google, and you don't want to. It's deeper than all these things. And a lot of people don't care about all of that because the dualism, the significance, it all gets worked in in the beginning, the, in the big stories. People like the big stories. And that dualism and binary shit gets locked in in your worldview right from the beginning. So let's challenge that, shall we? Let's talk about Adam and Eve. If you look at Genesis 2, when the divine us made the Adam, linguistically speaking, the human was created, like a species of beast. Now from a literary standpoint, the human is presented to the reader as male, or at least, that's not even true, masculine pronouns are used. But that may simply be a consequence of how stories are told in patriarchal societies. Let's not read too much into that. Choices have to be made. Diction is diction. The term, though, the text, the Adam, does not imply gender at all, just species. Human, dirt pile. The Ha-Adam comes from the Adama. (laughs) The dirt pile came a pile of dirt. 
Now, here is why the splitting of hairs is interesting. We as Christians, I kind of use we loosely, active or cultural, we base a significant amount of theological and sociological assumptions on the concept of what God made and mandated with Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, in the Garden of Eden and the roles associated with them. God's ideal, right? Now this story, whether we in present day westernized society read it literally and believe it, read it allegorically and believe it, or don't read it either way, don't believe it, it still informs how we approach almost every relationship in our lives. Romantic, platonic, familial. It informs our roles in society, the family, the church if you do that thing, the home, at work. It informs how others perceive us and how we perceive ourselves. It's used to validate gender roles and distinctions as well as exclusively canonize homosexuality. Heterosexuality. (laughs) What if it did? What if it did? What if Genesis 2 canonized homosexuality? That's a good thought exercise for anybody that's straight. What if your natural inclination was seen as an abomination? Just put yourself in those shoes for 10 seconds. (laughs) Anyway, that's not my point, but that's a fun one. Uh, Is Genesis 2 designed to do what I just said it does? Or is that an interpretive choice? Would you like to know what I think? I'll tell you. I have a new... It's not, it's not like a conviction or a revelation or anything. I just, I contend you can read Genesis 2 in a literal way, meaning you read the words and take meaning from the literal words of the, of the words. Not that you believe it literally happened in that way, but like if you read it literally, which what literalism would be. When all was at Shalom, in the Garden of Eden, at the end and pinnacle of God's perfect creation, there was no concept of gender or self-identity at all. And any claim suggesting that there's divinely instituted norms in this story is a human, societal interpolation of ancient scripture, not necessarily an accurate interpretation of the word of God. And there's a big difference. Interpolations are you kind of having your own way with something. Uh, So here, because it's not your fault. You were brought up in this. It's not your fault. You didn't make these choices, but you're holding on to these choices. So let's challenge some of these choices. I was reading through the opening chapters of Genesis in various languages and translations, because that's what I do. And I noticed that... uh, The text doesn't ever say that God created Eve. It actually doesn't say that God created a man named Adam either. God created, Elohim created, the Adam, humanity. God then formed another human, which the text calls an Isha, from the side of the Adam. Now, That's an important point. Lots of translations say rib. 
Lots of translations say side. I did some research on this, listened to some podcasts from some smarter people than me. And the word there better translates to side, which likely signifies that the Adam was split in half and reformed, like a whole side, not just missing a rib. Which means once you then form an Isha, you have to go back and form an Ish, which is what the text says happened. But Ish does not translate to Adam. Isha does not translate to Eve. Whatever Isha was is not different than the Adam. Isha was part of the Adam, and in fact, no less or more so than the Ish that's left over. Each were an equal part of what it is to be human, the Adam. Now, society has taken this part of the biblical text and has interpreted that point to complementarianism. Well, our society didn't necessarily do that, but we latched on to it. And that's the idea that men and women were created separate and distinct from one another for the purpose of somehow completing each other in very specific and divine ways. For some, the atom was split into complementary parts like puzzle pieces that were uniquely meant to fit back together but each having its own defined strengths and purposes. For others, who like the rib translation better, Eve being formed from such a small portion of the Adam perpetuates this idea of her being somewhat inferior or subordinate, in need of protection because she comes from underneath the arm. Come on now. Now, while the two complement each other, the man is seen as somewhat more dominant and of higher authority. So this is where the conceptions of the working husband and the homekeeper wife come from, where the patriarchy of churches, the refusal of equality for women in church roles come from. Now, yes, Paul and Peter's writings in the New Testament play a large role here as well. But cultural context is pretty important when you're analyzing the literal words written by men in a time where women, like wives and daughters included, were property, not peers. That they were applying divine obligations on husbands toward property at all and recognizing divine rights bestowed on that property, that might be the more important philosophical takeaway for cultures to do. Let alone the evidence that a lot of that stuff isn't really from Paul's pen in the first place. But even they and you, we all, tend to go back to Miss Eve. What actually might be a little bit more compelling is to suggest that Genesis 2 points to egalitarianism and the idea that this pair were fully equal. Isha, taken from and a part of the perfect Adam. So was Ish. Ish and Isha are fully formed humans, not each one half of what it makes to a human. Ish sees Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone in Isha. A divine kinship. Not that part of itself that was literally missing. That wouldn't make any sense. Isha is no less ha-adam after Isha is formed, and conversely it would seem Isha is also fully realized ha-adam. They're separate, 
but not wholly distinct. Nothing within the text to this point suggests there is any relevant difference between the two Adams. We simply have two pronouns to distinguish the two humans in a story that might just be about that human conception of distinguishing things. So let's, before we get there though, just so I can hammer in this weird point I'm making. The rule of not eating or even touching the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is given to the Adam before it is put to rest and the Isha is formed. But the first thing we read after Ish calls this creation Isha, God didn't make that distinction, by the way, is that the Isha knows about this prohibition. Isha starts talking to the snake, already knows what's up. Any explanation that you give for how Isha knew about this tree is pure speculation, and it requires you to add some detail of your own conception to complete. You bring your own preconceived notions with you when you read this story, and the more into this belief system you are, the more you're going to bring some Paul with you, and that's fine. But remember, when Paul uses the Eden story, he's using it for a particular reason, from a particular perspective, to make a point Paul wants to make. Paul's not telling you the point of the author of Genesis 2. He's making his own point. So no explanation is any more reasonable than the idea that Isha knew everything the Adam had known from the very moment that Isha was formed. Equally tasked, equally informed, equally responsible. So at this point in the story, Isha and Ish are terms that simply refer to the two human inhabitants of the Garden of Eden at peace, perfection, shalom with God. Isha is the term the first human used to refer to the second human. The creator in this story has made no distinctions yet whatsoever. Textually, gender hasn't come into play yet. The only time it does is the author, as narrator of the story, mentions that an Ish should leave Av and Em and cleave to Isha to become one. Now, I point out that the narrator does this as opposed to God or the Adam because in keeping with the themes of the story being told, the narrator has worked in conceptions that don't exist yet. There's no such thing as an Av and an Em, fathers and mothers, at this time in the story. You can't leave and cleave if you're Ish and Isha. These weren't directions to them. The inclusion of this sentence is about sending a message to the people that are hearing this story. People that already exist in a culture and society with marriages and family systems. It's not about the people inside the story to establish marriage and family systems. So it appears that while humanity is described as divinely created, any distinction between male and female, so far in the story at least, is created by the human narrating the story. Not God. Or at least so the Bible seems to say. Ah, who knows? I didn't write it. Now the Isha is only given her distinction, her distinction, 
when God asks the Adam why it's eaten the fruit. And Ish separates himself from both the Isha and the divine out of a sense of proportionate guilt. The woman you gave me caused me to fall. That's where gender came up. That's where, that's not even gender. That's where distinction came up. The woman you gave me caused me to fall. So that, okay. The most interesting part of the last few minutes you've wasted listening to me ramble on about this is that it is right there after what Christians consider the fall. After shalom has been broken. After the first sin and first punishments. I hate that terminology there too. On the way out the door of Eden by the boot of a fire sword wielding angel, Adam calls the woman his wife and names her Eve because she is the mother of all the living. It is only at that point in the story that we're introduced to their separate identities. And that takes place in the garden, but it didn't take place in divine paradise. According to the Christian narrative, that's already been broken. We can look at the punishments as divinity acknowledging their physical differences, but even that's a bungling assumption. Sure, Adam, now, is punished with having to work the ground that'll be hostile to him. Technically, the ground is punished, or cursed, not actually Adam. And Eve is not so much punished, but instead informed that the pains of childbirth would be increased and that she would long for her husband. Now, again, is that a punishment? Listen, she had not yet given birth. No one had in this story. So who is to say that this is not simply informative as opposed to a punishment? It said pain would be increased, which means pain was already going to be there. I've watched my wife bring two children into this world. There is no way to make that process painless. In fact, that's another point in and of itself. She's told that the pains of childbirth would be increased, meaning pain was already a reality in childbirth. But we are taught pain is a consequence of sin and the fall from perfection. So if pains of childbirth were going to be increased, perhaps childbearing was not part of the ideal for humanity prior to its fall. The whole be fruitful, multiply thing, that's part of the Genesis 1 creation story, not the Adam and Eve Garden of Eden story. They're different stories. We talked about that last time. So the functional difference in biological gender assignment has been completely irrelevant in this story until after the tree and after it's established that they won't live forever. There was no reason for them to have reproductive functioning. So there was no reason for gender assignment till harmony was broken. In terms of the Isha longing for her husband who would rule over her, well, let's look a little bit closer at the text literally. This difference in consequence makes literary sense. The text says that Adam is removed from the garden It doesn't actually say Eve was. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't. I'm just reading it, right? The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. That was his duty, not hers. Adam laboring to provide for himself out there in the untamed ground while Eve desires for him back in the garden that Adam can't get back into? That might simply be each of the Adam's geographical proximity to divinely provided food, not necessarily about divinely mandated gender roles. If both were, in fact, removed from the garden, which I'm fine with, then the God character in this story went immediately back to speaking about humanity as a singular collective unit without making distinction between male and female again, which also makes my point. Let's take a quick tangent. The wife at home raising the children while the husband is out providing. You know, the positioning that conservative Christianity has adopted as divine intent from the beginning and the basis of the American family, all that. In the Bible, that scenario is the punishment for the first couple. Or at least a negative consequence of their own choices. It's not the ideal. We're not... We took the punishment and made it the ideal instead of looking at... Just throwing that out there. My point is, if I have one, in one way of viewing this story and in one way of viewing it literally, Adam and Eve were never in the Garden of Eden. There was only unified humanity in harmonious communion with itself and with the divine there. Their gender and or separateness had no relevance, no expressed terminology, no taboos. It was no more clearly defined than was the plural Elohim that formed them. If the story is to be believed, all of what humanity is, was, or can be was right there singularly in the Adam. Christianity's problem is not about getting other people to conform to, realize, and accept the biblical idea of the proper two. Our problem is failing to realize from day one we've lost the biblical ideal of the unified one. It was never Adam and Eve. Or Adam and anybody. Just the Adam. Humanity. The problem is that there even exists a category for other. A problem the creator didn't have any input in. Genesis 2 is not about gender or any other categorizations. Because categorization is exclusionary. The divine is inherently inclusive. In fact, it's exclusively inclusive. The biblical authors either tried to prove that in the first couple of pages, or spirit was simply incapable of hiding it. What we've been doing is looking at it through imperfect lenses. But the one God, called Elohim, 
which is itself a plural noun, who is called the Father, though its feminine spirit of Ruach hovered over the deep at creation. And they said, let us make the human in our image than they did by making one thing that encompassed all of us. What we've done with that story since then is on us and us alone. Diversity is divine, baby. Distinctions are man-made. Just a thought. Just reading through. But uh, I'm going to, again, let you ride. Because I got other stuff to do, man. You can just do this all day. Out of your mind? (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for indulging my crazy. Uh, Let me quickly, briefly, deeply apologize for my blind spots. I have always loved imperfectly. I will continue to love imperfectly. But I'm trying. And if I have ever made anyone that comes across this feel like there was something about you unlovable I apologize from the bottom of my heart and whatever God I brought to you when I did that if I did that I don't believe in it It took me a long time to let them go, but I don't. And it's not just that I don't believe in that particular thing. That one doesn't exist. It's not real. Maybe none of them are. But that one, for sure. Uh, This is You Are Not Listening to This Podcast. I love you.